Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Dennis, great to be able to catch up with you again. I, I feel like it's been a while. I think it has been, um, but always amazing to get your, your views in terms of everything that's going on in the world. So thank you. Anytime, Catherine. All right. Um, you know, I think you and I always kind of start our conversations and, and thinking, even though you're a bottoms up investor, about what's going on from a macro perspective. So, um, you know, obviously there's so much in, in focus on inflation and what the Fed will or will not do. That's one side that people are focusing on. But A, what do you say to that? But also, where are you most focused? Right. And so, of course, inflation is the topic du jour. And the real debate seems to be how much of it is transitory and how much of it is here for the long term that has to be combated, if you will, by the Fed. And it's been quite some time since central banks around the world have actually had to fight high inflation. I would say for the last 12 years, the challenge has been to create inflation. So from our standpoint, there are big chunks of it that are certainly transitory. You know, during the pandemic and the shutdown, you, you know, you had a curtailment of supply. And now with economies expanding, you've got a ramp up in demand for a lot of goods and services, and it's going to take a while to get, you know, sort of inventory back to a level that prices will meet at a place that isn't quite as inflationary as it is right now. So there's that aspect to it. The part that we are paying attention to, however, is the wage side of it, because quite honestly, you can't have sustainable inflation unless you see an uptick in the amount of debt in the system, or you see an increase in wages that workers earn. And so we've heard anecdotal stories about Disney, of course, paying $1,000 signing bonuses to housekeeping staff and cleaners. We've heard a number of CEOs speak about how it's difficult to get employees to come back when they're making quite so much on the extended benefits they're enjoying because of the pandemic. And so to the extent that any of that uh, is permanent in nature or results in a, a permanently higher level of wages, there is the potential for inflation to be persistent. But at the end of the day, we think that we're in a transitory inflationary spike, that it will start to moderate towards the tail end of this year and certainly into 2022. And we don't anticipate that the Fed or other central banks are really going to respond to this in any meaningful way, i.e. accelerating rate normalization or increasing the, uh, the amount that they increase rates by. We're, we've all become accustomed to 25 basis point hikes or cuts we don't anticipate the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve like bumping that up to 50 beeps or 100 beeps to combat this inflationary wave that we're seeing right now. Hmm. And so, Dennis, you're almost seeing that in the market as well. I mean, the market has calmed down in terms of those concerns. It was only maybe, it's hard to keep track of time in, in COVID, that's for sure. But uh, I don't know, maybe six, eight weeks ago, where, where there was a lot of concern that the inflation that we were, we were starting to see would cause various central bankers around the world to increase rates at a faster pace than anybody had anticipated. Then for, you know, then you'd see the sell-off of tech stocks, et cetera. But U.S. 10-year yield today hit 1.38. Now, mind you, the ISM numbers came out, but which did disappoint. But it's amazing how, to me, how quickly that narrative changed. So I don't know. I mean, who's controlling the narrative or why is now everybody believing 
the Fed and, and your point, which is that any inflation we're going to see is, in fact, transitory. Yeah, I think I think people were expecting people had a healthy sense of skepticism that the Fed would be able to toe the line and the current messaging. And I think the the things that really convinced investors that the Fed was serious about their timeline was one, you had a Fed meeting followed by a press conference where you could hear from Chairman Powell himself. And that's important. We get a lot of Fed speakers. Some of them are voting members. Some of them are not. Um, I, I'll go out on a limb and say, you know, the Fed governor who chairs the, the Bank of New York is probably a little more important to listen to than, say, Richmond or St. Louis. And so you get a lot of Fed speakers and a lot of chatter and a lot of narratives that build out. But at the end of the day, what you really need to pay attention to or who you need to pay attention to is obviously the chair, the vice chair and New York. And as you get to hear from those three chairmen or vice chairmen, if you will, uh, you get a better picture of where the Fed is positioned, uh, their adherence to their current, forget about the dot plot, their current sort of forward guidance. Uh, and you begin to see that as much noise and narratives are building out, there really hasn't been much of a change in the positioning of the Fed. And then, of course, you'll get minutes released. I believe we're due to get minutes released this week. And that really gives you the behind the curtains view of the debates that are taking place. And more importantly, how many people are in one camp and how many people are in the other camp. So I think right. that's gone a long way towards cooling the market off a little bit to say the Fed is not going to accelerate their activity. They don't see the current inflationary wave as uh, permanent. Um, they see it as transitory. And so trades that are offside of that long-term view are being unwound. And some of the volatility in the market is being tamped down. And you're seeing it, as you mentioned, in long bond yields coming down. Now, I've heard commentary that we could touch 125. That would be interesting. I think if you if you dip below that level, then there would be concerns about these duration of the recovery that we're seeing. I think it would take something like a, a significant outbreak at maybe in maybe Japan centered around the Olympics uh, or a significant setback in one of the large states in the United in the United States for us to dip below one two five. But, you know, I would have thought that uh, I would have taken something more serious to have us dip below one five in the U.S. And mm -hmm. yet here we are below one four. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of things that are possible, but as it sits right now, I think on balance, you're going to see rates tick up uh, over the longer term. You're going to see inflation moderate over the longer term. And I think that value trade we talked about is going to be that winning trade going forward. Hmm. Okay, a lot, a lot to pick up on there, but I, I do want to remind listeners, but new listeners, hopefully too, Dennis, why we focus so much on inflation and interest rates. And it is because that is how asset prices are valued and it helps you decide where you want to be in investments, but also how to even plan your own personal budget, does it not? Absolutely. I mean, interest rates are your, your bottom line foundational risk-free rate that decide and, and are key inputs on the valuation of any asset or any risky asset for sure. So figuring out the various components of long-term interest rates, sort of the real cost of money, the inflation expectation, and so forth, that will give you an idea of where you should be allocating money, and more importantly, what type of return you should be demanding for the risk that you're taking in that investment. Right. Great, great point as well. Um, so in terms of the um, interest rate outlook that you have, which is moderate in terms of inflation, and therefore we won't see rates spike or rise too aggressively. Where does that leave you when you think about investing? And almost probably before we get to that, I should be asking you, um, you know, what is your growth outlook? How, how are you seeing 
uh, the current economy? Do you see a nice recovery happening? Is it just pockets? Is it going to be slow and steady? I mean, it wasn't strong, particularly strong growth pre-pandemic. Yeah, excellent point. We were in a prolonged slow growth uh, time period since 2008, 2009, really. And there are lots of debates as to what caused that, you know, fiscal mistakes, you know, monetary policy mistakes. My argument would be when you create the mother of all, you know, debt bubbles around the world, literally almost every country on the planet, uh, it's going to be tough to inflate your way out of that. And so we've seen the result of, of pricking uh, that size bubble. Uh, it's, the result of it has been 12 years of, of stagnant growth. And there are some people who will argue that if we had cut you know, tax rates and if we had uh, lowered interest rates faster and we had let the market absorb some of this pain, we would have recovered faster and would have enjoyed higher growth. Uh, the challenge with that is taking that path is, is that it results in real human beings losing their jobs. It results in real human beings not being able to put food on the table. And as long as politicians are human beings that need other human beings to vote for them, that's not likely a scenario that's going to unfold. Hmm. So we've been in this low growth environment for an extended period of time. We think that the growth going forward is going to remain above trend for the rest of this year and into next year. And that is quite, fun, or quite frankly, just a function of the global economy reopening. Uh, you're going to see a ramp up in production. You're going to see a ramp in job creation. And for a short period of time, households in North America and around the world are going to enjoy a lot of cash and a lot of buying power. You're seeing it now with, you know, the savings rate was extended for a, a short period of time there as people couldn't spend on things like movies or restaurants or entertainment, like going to see sporting events. As those things open up, and I, I think I heard that the Jays are negotiating to come back to Toronto. As those things open up, you are going to see more consumption. And so that consumption is going to drive economic growth. But a lot of those things that we're missing are not things that people do multiple times. Like if you didn't go on a cruise last year, it's highly unlikely you're going to do two or three this year to make up for past cruises that you missed. And similarly, if you missed seeing a movie in a movie theater last year and you streamed it instead, I don't know that a lot of people are going to then go to the movie theaters just to see that movie that came out last year in the movie theater. So you're going to see this short term period of increased economic output and production that is going to continue to drive global growth. But then after a while, you're going to start to mean revert back to the long-term average. And then that's the challenge for either central bankers or for ministers of finance or what have you. When do you, when do you sort of uh, intervene to keep growth? At where do you intervene and how do you intervene to keep growth at potential? So are we going to see more fiscal stimulus? Are we going to see you know, a, a monetary policy stance that's as accommodative as it was before the pandemic? And what will the impact be on global growth going forward? Uh, I, you know, not that my job is the easiest in the world, but I don't envy the central bankers and ministers of finance who have to make those decisions to try and keep the global economy sort of within those guardrails. Uh, fair point. And, you know, I'm, I might segue a little bit here for a second, but anybody listening would say, well, why do we have to have central bankers and or finance ministers intervene? Um, to keep our economy and global economy going. Uh, why, if we've got the structures and corporations and people in place, why do we need such intervention? Yeah, great question. And, and uh, I know a lot of people subscribe to the idea that markets should be allowed to find their own equilibrium. 
The problem with that is that markets are, are very inefficient. And while we all go to business school and learn about the three forms of market efficiency, in, in the real world, markets are not as efficient as they are in a textbook. And so what you end up with is you end up with excesses in one area that are compensated by you know, shortages in another area. Probably the best example of why markets need to be regulated and need to be kept between guardrails is, of course, the financial crisis of 08 and 09. There you had a market that was relatively boring, that being the US residential market. And um, you can see what happened when somebody found a new toy and started to artificially create demand for that new toy because there was the profit incentive. You had this massive creation of securitized products tied to residential housing in the United States. And it created an unsustainable situation in terms of home prices, valuations, incentives, and transactions left unchecked that market, it turned out, had the, had the potential and the ability to take down the entire financial system. So I, I think recent history demonstrates to you why there needs to be some goalposts and guardrails on market activity. Uh, in theory, markets are self-correcting, but in reality, they're full of people. And depending on their incentives and their motivations, they have the potential to do serious harm. Yeah, that, that's a good explanation. So, uh, you're right, because depending on the products and the people involved, um, you, you, you know, you end up with these extremes. Speaking of which, though, Dennis, you know, when you were mentioning the slow growth post-financial crisis um, and the debt that was accumulated, you know, there are more and more concerns. And again, nobody knows the timing of this. And this is the big question, I think, or might be end up being the big question is uh, the amount of debt that has been created uh, since the pandemic around the world from various governments. How, how much of a concern is that? Or, you know, when do you start to worry about it? Yeah, I think uh, you have a valid point. Uh, at some point you do have to be concerned. We don't think it's right now, right? And when you talk about debt, uh, you know, Republican congressmen in the United States always like to talk about the amount of debt that's been created and uh, everyone invokes, you know, your children and your grandchildren having to pay this bill. When everybody forgets that your children and grandchildren are inheriting all the assets that we created. And so they should inherit the cost of creating those assets, i.e. the debt as well. Um, so what we look at is not so much the amount of debt that's being created, but what it's being created to do and in comparison to the rate of growth of asset formation. So for instance, every household knows that um, if you're going into debt to buy a house, uh, that's a productive use of capital and debt. If you're going into debt to watch movies and you know, buy a, well, buying a car is a tough one to use, but if you're going into debt to buy shirts and clothes and go on vacation, there's no asset accumulation against that. And so that's, that's not the best source and use of debt. When we look at the debt that's being created in North America, Canada, the United States, a lot of that debt is to finance and to protect households and corporations during the pandemic to replace the revenues of corpse and the income of households. That I believe is a productive use of debt and capital by either government. So I'm on side with that. But mm -hmm. over the long term, you're going to need to see a ramp up in the growth rate of economic production, GDP growth of each country that hopefully exceeds the rate of debt formation. Otherwise, over time, you're going to see the level of debt ramp to a level that starts to impact the economic productivity of the country as itself. Everything's got diminishing returns, right? Mm -hmm. So to sum, I think, that, uh, I think that the debt that we're accumulating right now is positive, i.e. it's being used for the right reasons. I think the rate of debt accumulation has to be looked at. And at some point, there has to be a time where we plan out where the rate of, 
excuse me, GDP growth accelerates and, and becomes higher than the rate of debt creation. Absent that, you're going to run into problems longer term. But right now we're in a good position and I, I don't think anyone should be alarmed about the type or the amount of debt that's being created. Interesting perspective, um, you know, in terms of recognizing that, yes, it's a liability, but there's a lot of assets that have been um, grown because of the, the debt accumulation. Uh, but speaking of which, of course, you know, there's been a lot of money uh, put into the asset class of real estate, which is obviously your area of expertise for many, many years. Um, what, what do you and I'm just going to start kind of Toronto based. Um, what, what do you make of the Toronto and GTA home prices? And again, you do much more in real estate versus home prices. But I, th I think it's important to get your perspective on this. Sure. And, and I would say that I read just this morning that the Toronto housing market is cooling off a little bit. And, uh, you know, part of the part of the increase, the rapid increase in pricing that we saw, of course, was significant ramps in demand and not seeing commensurate ramp ups in supply. So, I mean, if there were 10 listings and there were 10 sort of bids, you know, you had a market in equilibrium. When you've got 20 listings and 100 people looking for homes, you can clearly see where prices are skewed up. And so that's what we saw during the pandemic. Uh, more recently, I think, as people get their second vaccination shot and they start to look forward to things they want to do, the urgency of sort of getting out of, you know, highly dense, you know, residential neighborhoods or, or living structures is reduced. And so you're seeing less bids, less demand for homes, and the number of listings really hasn't changed much, period. So we look at the housing market and we say it is a huge component of Canadian GDP growth. Um, you know, this economy is driven by a number of things. You, you can talk about energy all you want, but it's driven by immigration in Canada for, I believe, the last eight or nine years has been the fastest growing country in the G7 in terms of population growth. So immigration drives a lot of our growth. And as a result, the housing market in Canada drives a lot of our growth. Um, you know, we, when we talk real estate, everyone always says location, location, location. It's really jobs, jobs, jobs. Wherever jobs are created, people move to and then that creates a demand for residential real estate. Then it creates a demand for, I mean, if you're creating jobs, you're gonna need offices or industrial space. You're gonna need transportation infrastructure to get people from where they live to where they work and back. You're gonna need uh, retail infrastructure and retail real estate for the places to shop, places to worship, places to take their children to school. So it's really about job creation. And in the Canadian economy, a lot of that job creation has come through the housing market. And so I, I don't anticipate that the federal government or even down to the municipalities are going to take overt steps to undermine the growth that we've seen in the residential housing market. And as long as we have solid job growth and uh, increased in immigration levels, I think the housing market is going to be relatively stable and continue on its upward trajectory. But we're certainly going to level off from what we've seen in the last six months. And so dovetailing some of those thoughts into um, your firm and, and how you approach investing, um, give us some of the themes that you're looking at right now. And also, I probably should ask, what themes out of COVID are you taking away and implementing? Yeah, it's interesting because what we saw during COVID was really just an acceleration or a distillation, if you will, of what we saw leading up to the pandemic. So I think most investors want to allocate capital to companies that are in the way of where money is going and where value is being created, right? So before the pandemic, we had a lot of capital invested in industrial REITs, in cell tower and data center REITs, and in residential REITs. And what we saw during the pandemic, of course, was that we actually 
increased our allocation to those four sectors even more so and and kind of moved away from some very specific business models, if you will, um, less so than sectors. We didn't have a lot of retail or office in the portfolio going into the pandemic because quite honestly, longer term, the structural drivers were working against both of those sectors and that was just exacerbated by the pandemic. We didn't have any lodging, we didn't have any seniors housing. So again, those were things we didn't really have to avoid. But what we did do is we moved out of certain business models. So for instance, we owned a, a mid cap name that was domiciled in one of the European Union countries. And their business model was that they bought under leased, under invested assets. They put capital into the, into the assets and then they released them. And so that's a business model that's predicated on positive and expanding economic activity. You, you know, in order for you to make that investment, you have to have a pretty good idea that you're going to be able to release that space to a tenant that's better in quality and will sign a long-term lease at market rates or better. Well, if you're going into a pandemic where businesses are shutting down and economic activity is contracting sharply, that's not a business model that you would expect to perform well in that environment. And remember, this time last year, we were just really beginning to understand, whoa, this isn't going to be we're out of the office for two months. We're, we're going to be out of the office for a little longer than that. So we exited business models like that. And now as we reopen and as economic activity picks up, we'll be looking to pick up more of those types of businesses and those business models. Um, but sector-wise, it really hasn't changed because the fundamentals of various sectors, whether it be industrial or, or residential, haven't changed because of the pandemic. If anything, they've improved and accelerated because of the pandemic. At the same time, Dennis, um, you know, when you think about buying an asset or an investment of sorts, I mean, obviously you gotta take a look at the valuation. And so many people have now been focused on some of the industrial REITs. Are there still a lot of opportunities there? Yeah, and so, I mean, you can come up with a narrative for any level of valuation to justify, you know, moving money into something that's going up. I think in the case of industrial real estate, what you truly have to understand is the magnitude of the move that's taking place. I think people understand that e-commerce is the future and that more and more people are buying more and more things online. When you start to quantify it, though, you begin to understand just how much and how long this wave is going to continue. So in the case of industrial real estate, um, CBRE is estimated that for every billion dollar increase in e-commerce transactions, that creates incremental demand for 1.25 million square feet of industrial real estate. So to put that in context, uh, next year, we would expect the demand for industrial real estate in this country to increase by over 30, 30 million square feet. Now, if you start looking at what's under construction right now, it's closer to 3 million. So you're talking about a tenfold increase in, in development that would be required to meet the incremental, incremental demand of just this one year's worth of e-commerce growth. And as that continues year after year, as more and more people buy more and more things online, that demand for industrial real estate is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. So we're not talking about a one or two year cycle. We're talking about five to 10 years uh, before I think e-commerce and, and in-person bricks and mortar sort of reach equilibrium in terms of this is how much actual physical space you need, and this is how much of an online presence and portal you need. And once you hit equilibrium, you'll probably still have several more years of development on the industrial side before you hit equilibrium in the actual physical market. Now, if someone invents the transporter tomorrow, all this goes out the window. But until someone does that, there is a very long runway of exceptional growth in industrial real estate in North America and globally. 
And, and so we're very comfortable allocating capital to a number of names still. And, and that is in order to satisfy the e-commerce growth. Yeah. So we're not even talking about sort of the demand for, you know, household goods, entertainment. We're, we're not even talking about sort of cyclical fluctuations. So that's just sort of e-commerce. When you start talking about people buying, instead of buying, you know, a dress or shoes in person, just shifting to e-commerce and buying it online. Uh, and so as we talk more and more about other areas that could move, you know, their consumption online, that just creates even more incremental demand. So Dennis, let me push back for a second here. Um, so, and just to be clear, you think we will see equilibrium between e-commerce, online shopping or online activity and retail in how many years, five to 10 or 10? Yeah, five to 10. And the reason I say that is because you're gonna see a lot of companies, first movers, Nike is a great example, who capitalize now. But you're going to see a lot of smaller companies and a lot of other geographies not even begin to really approach equilibrium for five to six years from now. So, you know, I mean, there'll be some examples where you can say way ahead of that. And there'll be other examples where you can say not even close. We don't even have the physical infrastructure to support any of that. I wonder though, you know, when I think back um, at my time at William, during my time at William Blair in like 1998, uh, you know, as a junior analyst doing equity research covering specialty retail and e-commerce, e that, that's the key word here, uh, you know, building the models for barnesandnoble.com, borders.com, Amazon, eBay, uh, landsend.com, every company that, you know, added a .com, the stock went, shot up, you know, 20, 30, 40, 70%. Um, and, you know, that was 1998. I mean, over 20 years ago, when everybody thought that e-commerce was going to take over the world. And it's been such a slow move. Um, it, it, it represents uh, low double digits in terms of overall retail consumption. So, you know, just because we've had the pandemic, if anything, I, I, I feel like people really want to go back to the stores and um, want to touch and want to feel and want to have the experience and want to go out. I'm not so convinced that we would see equilibrium, um, you know, in 10 years for sure. Yeah. And so against that, what I would say is, is that you're about to see one of the greatest wealth transfers in the history of civilization. And that will not new paradigms, but you're going to be shifting from maybe one of the easiest examples is you're going to be shifting to people who see gold as their store of value and their inflation hedge to people who think Bitcoin is their store of value and their inflation hedge. And so that shift of capital is going to create bifurcation in terms of the outlook for those two assets, just based on that. And then the decision isn't necessarily just the consumers. You know, the client is always right to a certain degree. Um, I mentioned Nike before. Nike had a fantastic quarter that they just reported and the stock was up 15%. But if you parse through the numbers, what you'll find is that their in-person numbers, you know, they're distributing through their wholesalers, whether it be Foot Locker or, or Dix or whomever, those numbers were actually pretty, medi pretty mediocre. And China, wasn't even in, even wasn't even the big driver for their numbers, and you know there's there's some economics around demand creation expense and marketing uh, for an Olympic year that actually negatively impact Nike's earnings. What actually drove Nike was DTC, direct to consumer. So for you know a, a quick primer on Nike, you know they sell their shoes to Foot Locker, Foot Locker marks it up and sells it to the consumer, and so there's two margins there, Nikes and Foot Lockers. But as Nike migrates more of their stuff to their Nike.com portal, they get to absorb Foot Locker's margin. 
right? Because there can't be an arbitrage. You can't be able to buy Air Force 360s for 200 from Nike and, and 250 from Foot Locker, right? You got to right. be able to pay 200 for them in either portal. So Nike gets to absorb all that margin. So they don't even have to sell any more shoes to, to drive earnings growth. They just have to divert more of the flow to their own DTC channel to capture more and more margin and drive profitability. And so you're starting to see the beginnings of that. So consumers may want to go to the store to get those Air Force 360s, but if they're not there, they're going to buy them online. And then the other thing that Nike has understood is that with that shift of wealth from, you know, let's say older investors to, to the next generation, that next generation prizes uniqueness and individuality. So that's why Nike now gives you the ability to customize your shoes such that you're the only one with this pattern on your Air Force Ones on the planet. You know, not even Travis Scott has this pattern in this color scheme. It's just you. And so that will drive more traffic to the DTC channel. And mm -hmm. so some of it will be consumer driven. A lot of it will be companies innovating and giving you more of a unique experience, which is what I think the new consumer desires. Yeah, I, I would agree with that in terms of the, the uniqueness that, that individuals do want. Mm -hmm. um, I can see that being a driver. So within the industrial space, then it, what, what names should people be thinking about? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're looking in, in Canadian industrial names, Summit has had a fantastic run. Um, I think some of that may have been tied to a transaction that they executed um, around artist read. Um, there, you know, that, so that name has had a tremendous run from the $13 mark to, I think, where are we today? Uh, around $17, I believe. Uh, Granite is a name that we've owned for quite some time. Uh, it's had a nice run from sort of the high 50s to up to the $70 range now. It's traded a little choppy recently. We, we, one of the reasons we love Granite is because the balance sheet is so underutilized and has been probably since the IPO. So there's the ability for them to do very, very accretive acquisitions in North America and in Europe with that ironclad balance sheet. And then if you're looking outside of Canada, you know, I think a lot of investors own Prologis and Duke Realty. They're probably the two best quality industrial names, um, certainly the two best balance sheets. And, but Prologis is head and shoulders the best name out there in terms of quality, location, footprint, client base. And, and so anytime you can buy that at net asset value or a small discount, you should just buy it and probably forget about it for the next five or six years. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and outside of industrial, you know, you mentioned cell towers as being an area of interest and, and a lot of people might not recognize or real, uh, understand that that is considered real estate. Uh, maybe just give a, a bit of a, um, you know, a, a brief on why that is considered real estate or why we should be looking at it that way. Yeah, well, it, it, the short answer is it's real estate because the IRS uh, says that it's real estate and that it qualifies. <laughs> and so I think one of the things people have to understand is that you have to meet certain tests in order to, to, you know, to, to be taxed as a REIT. And so there are tests around your assets and what they're classified as. There are tests around how much of your earnings that you pay out. And so when you go back to that first test, how, what are your assets and what are they classified as? The IRS has a big say as to what is real estate, immovable property, you know, what are the characteristics? And so, you know, some investors will be surprised to hear that there are billboard companies in the United States that are actual REITs, right? Mm -hmm. There are outdoor advertising firms that are, that are REITs. Uh, even in the lodging space, there are hybrid models where some of the companies just own the real estate. Some of the companies own the real estate and have taxable REIT subsidiaries that manage the real estate. So there are lots of combinations of different REITs within North America and across the world. 
But in, in the case of cell towers, yes, they, they are classify as real estate for tax purposes. And so, you know, companies like Inwit or Cellnex or in the United States, American Tower or Crown Castle, they qualify as REITs. And, you know, it, from our standpoint, we, I think everybody owns American Tower. A lot of investors own Crown Castle or SBAC. What we found is the lots of value in Europe in particular, and also now in Asia as we continue to do our work. So I mentioned Inwit and Cellnex, which are two European names uh, that we own quite a bit of. They're a little more volatile than you'll see out of American Tower or Crown Castle, but the runway for them to sort of grow their portfolios drive sort of concentration on their towers and grow cash flows, I, I think is a little more, it's a little longer and there's a greater slope to the cash flow growth they can generate compared to these other US names. And then within Canada, we don't have that opportunity. No, it's one of the problems with having sort of, you know, a duopoly in the telecom industry in this country is that um, there isn't the same sort of innovation and value creation out of some of these names and in this sector. So there's a huge opportunity for both Bell and, and Rogers and, and potentially TELUS and, and some of the other competitors to create um, a cell tower REIT in Canada or oh. to monetize those assets by selling them to a Crown Castle, or sorry, not Crown Castle, American Tower. Um, we just haven't seen the impetus to doing that just yet. Mm -hmm. What would be the impetus? I mean, it's probably nicer to own to be a little bit more vertically integrated as they are. Competition. Uh, if we opened up the Canadian market to competition, it would force the incumbents to, uh, to utilize their capital and their assets more efficiently. And so one of the first things all of, both of them would do would be to divest themselves of low growth assets, low ROE assets, and the cell towers would make perfect sense. There'd be a premium bid for them, so you'd realize lots of return, and you'd be able to deploy that capital into improving the network, expanding the network, and driving sort of a more efficient uh, network as well. So competition for sure. Okay. Um, Dennis, when you think about um, investing around the world, um, and it seems as though it's just so sector you know, or subsector and stock specific in terms of really where you see opportunities and why, but I don't know. I mean, give us, some, sometimes though people have um, a North American bias. What, what's, what's your view? I think everybody has a home country bias. I think if you went uh, and looked at an Irish port, you know, a portfolio run by someone who's Irish and in Ireland, you'd find that Ireland is overrepresented in their portfolio. I, I think some of that is good uh, because you want to invest in companies where you can get the maximum amount of information, right? And so minimize the amount of lag in terms of the timing of getting that information and maximize your ability to go and relate with management um, and see the actual physical assets. So I think for, for a lot of investors, having a home market bias makes a lot of sense. But I think from a global and sort of a totality of exposure to investment ideas and innovation and, and longer term returns, it's important to make sure that you do have exposure to enough sectors, enough geographies that you're getting that exposure. And mm -hmm. so the, one of the things that we try to do at Starlight to sort of maximize the efficiency of returns is we look for companies that are domiciled in developed markets, but are pushing into emerging markets. So I've mentioned American Tower a couple of times. Um, you know, in my portfolio, it shows up as a U.S. holding. However, you know, over 30% of the assets now are outside of the United States. You know, when you start buying cell tower packages in India and in Africa and South America, you're really tapping into high growth markets. But, you know, in terms of the volatility of those equity markets, you probably don't want that exposure. So this is a much more efficient way to get that exposure. So we're huge supporters of, of that model for companies that have got a demonstrated 
sort of expertise or talent or skill to uh -huh. deploy that into other geographies with faster growth potential. And some of those geographies will require them to have a, a local partner. Some of those geographies will require multi-year study before you enter them. But you know, if Brookfield can make it work um, and through Brookfield Asset Management and their various subsidiaries, then I think there are other companies out there that similarly can come up with a strategy and a structure for all similarly making it work in their sectors or their industries. Mm -hmm. And um, when we think about um, some of the areas that have been hit hard because of the pandemic and, their, and the valuations in some cases reflect that, uh, are there some interesting opportunities, perhaps specifically in lodging, um, that, that you're looking at? And again, you know, if, if in fact lodging is classified as, as real estate. Yeah, lodging is real estate. Um, I kind of mentioned before, there are a couple of models you can use, you know, from the, re from the real estate standpoint, you're either an owner of the assets and somebody else operates the asset because it's the operation of the hotels that isn't good quality income for the REIT. Uh, or you can own the real estate and have a taxable REIT subsidiary that manages the real estate, in which case, you know, that taxable income is, or sorry, that bad income, if you will, is confined to that subsidiary and there'll be tax leakage as a result, but the lion's share of the revenue is in sort of the ownership of the assets and that is still good quality REIT income. Mm -hmm. so when we look at lodging, what you're really looking for is how much of your exposure is to the business traveler who probably isn't coming back this year or next year and how much of your exposure is to the leisure traveler and then oh. where are you located and are you in the way of people wanting to travel and to get away from their dining room right so mm -hmm. um, but historically that's been flipped that's historically been the opposite Historically, you've wanted leisure properties that cater to business travel, right? Consistent conferences, consistent um, sort of business trips that people have to make to New York or Chicago or San Francisco or LA. Now, what you're looking for is how much exposure do I have to um, Florida? How much exposure do I have to San Francisco? People are gonna wanna get out, do wine tours in San Francisco again in Napa. People are gonna wanna get out to Florida and get some sun. Um, and people are going to want to get to the more leisure areas and that travel is coming back sooner. Business travel, you know, we're doing this over Zoom. Uh, yeah. I think business travel is going to take a long time to come back. But, you know, twofold, people are going to want to, you know, you know I'm, I'm going to want to stay home a little bit more and see my kids. And similarly, companies are looking at it and saying, you know what, we can function pretty efficiently virtually and maybe it's less in-person visits to facilitate the relationship and to do due diligence on acquisitions or transactions. But you know that once a quarter sort of drop in to shake hands and spend too much money at the sushi joint, we can probably skip that. But it was fun. <laughs> it was fun, but we've all got to change and innovate. Yeah. Well, you know, so just FYI, something popped up on my phone, um, Wall Street Journal reporting that Goldman and JP Morgan are ordering their, their people back to the office. Yeah, we, we had an event with a very, very large financial services firm last year at this time, and they actually told us that they had been back in the office since May. And we yeah. were quite surprised, May of last year, not this year. And wow. so we were quite surprised by that, but they were, they were large enough that they simply said, we pay to have everyone tested every day. And it wow. was because, yeah, it was a combination of their scale and the nature of their business model, where they just simply said, 
We want everyone to be indoctrinated into our culture. We think there are huge benefits from people interacting on a daily basis. And um, we have the scale and the capacity to be able to pay for this and absorb it as business costs. So yeah. that's the way we're going to go. And it, there didn't seem to be much pushback from their employees. So it really is company dependent. Size, mm -hmm. scale, footprint, industry, and culture are all going to play a factor on how quickly business travel comes back and how quickly people return to the office. Yeah, and it's still definitely a bit of an unknown, I think, for many managers and CEOs in terms of the right approach uh, and respecting people's uh, concerns. And at the same time, you know, having the, the leadership and the forward thinking to decide and determine what will actually be best for the corporate culture, which I think is key. And I think people probably now need it, need it more than ever. Yeah, and quite honestly, if you're an executive of a firm, this is just another multifaceted decision that you have to make that has long reaching implications, right? Which products to introduce and when, in which markets, which pricing, what aftermarket service, and on and on and on. So this part, the human capital management piece of it is no less complex and no less critical to business success. So. You know, there, I, I have an old saying that if the job wasn't hard, it wouldn't pay so well. Uh, last I checked, most, corp, most big corporate CEOs were doing well. So the fact that they've got tough decisions to make shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, no, great point. Um, speaking of products, you just mentioned the word product. Tell us a little bit about what your firm, your company offers investors. Sure. So we are focused, Starlight Capital is focused on real assets. And for us, real assets encompass real estate and infrastructure. And what we're trying to do is we are attempting to bring solutions to retail investors, high net worth investors and family offices, solutions that combine both publicly traded securities and private assets. And the idea is that you can, you can almost curate the risk return that you wanna get. So if you're looking for a more longer term compounding and less volatility, you know our private pools that are 80% private and 20% listed are probably the option. If you're looking for more liquidity and yield and diversity of exposure, then our publicly traded mutual, our mutual funds and ETFs that are 90% listed securities and 10% privates are probably the better option. And we have solutions in between both ends of that spectrum. And so, you know, on, our, on the private side, we bring, we bring uh, solutions that aren't accessible by high net, to high net worth investors, to retail investors, because they're institutional solutions. You know, so in those investments, we're giving people exposure to institutional solutions where they're investing alongside large U.S. state pension plans, large Canadian pension plans, huge, you know, we're talking trillion dollar um, global asset management firms. And so those solutions give you exposure to sectors, industries, businesses, strategies that aren't accessible to the average everyday investor. And, and Dennis, just, but just describe how you have access to that. Relationships, Catherine. I, I've been, as you can see by my goatee hair, I've been doing this for quite some time. And so between myself and my other team members, we've cultivated these relationships over decades. And so we now have the ability to uh, leverage those relationships and, and that those track records to bring these solutions to the Canadian market. And in a number of instances, we are the only access to some of these solutions. And so the results have been fantastic. I mean, year to date, we just went through the six month mark. Our private real estate pool has generated over a 16% re total return. And our private infrastructure solution is knocking on the door of a 10% total return. And that's with still six months to go for this year. So the returns have been phenomenal. It's because we're giving people exposure to assets and solutions and strategies that are usually reserved for large institutional investors with 
hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of capital. And then still on the listed security side, yeah. giving people in Canada in particular exposure to sectors that don't exist in Canada. So we talked about cell towers. There are no pure play cell tower REITs in Canada or data centers. When you talk about industrial, we can give you exposure to industrial names in the US, in Europe, in Asia, and in fact, we do. So, you know, the combination of giving you exposure to sectors that don't exist in Canada and strategies that aren't accessible to retail investors really complete, creates a compelling offering. And so the risk-adjusted returns you're seeing are no surprise. And, and that's an important point, uh, risk-adjusted returns. When you talk about double-digit returns, somebody might say, well, I bought, I don't know what company, and it's up, you know, 30%. What, you know, but the, the point is that you have to understand the, the risk aspect of any asset. So um, how, does, how do those returns compare to, to the risk? Yeah, and so depending on how you measure risk, you know, I think the, the common measure is volatility and, you know, whether it's standard deviation or beta, but just how much does the stock price or the asset price fluctuate? From our standpoint, if you're measuring risk that way, our private solutions have got significantly less volatility and therefore risk than other solutions you'll see that give you or attempt to give you similar exposure. If you're measuring risk as a function of what's the probability that I may lose purchasing power? or that my investment may suffer a permanent loss of its value. Well, we're giving you exposure to strategies, assets, sectors that you normally wouldn't get exposure to. And these are reserved for very large investors that can step in and write the size checks that are required to buy these types of assets. Mm -hmm. When you start looking through who you're investing alongside and the types of assets that you're buying and the track record of performance, I would argue that you're actually exposed to a lower level of absolute risk when you start talking about making those types of investments. But we don't, we don't cut corners. Simply because a very large financial institution is investing in this pool does not mean that we ourselves don't do our firsthand due diligence. And all of our private partners will attest to the fact that we are very thorough when it comes to visiting their assets, you know, questioning management as to their strategy and what their priorities are for deploying free cash flow and making sure that we've right-sized our own investment in that larger pool. Okay, um, and Dennis, just to wrap it up then, um, in terms of why real estate and infrastructure continue to make sense uh, to invest in, because there has been concern that if we have rising rates, which you know doesn't seem like the market and or you think we will see much of, um, but, you know, there's the view and it's not always true. And, you know, I've talked about this for years that if rates rise, REITs go down. You say that that's not the case. And I, I hear you on that front. There's a lot of evidence to support that. But that but that does get bantered about it in the marketplace. Um, but what, what's the case for real estate and infrastructure right now? Yeah. And this goes back to my earlier comments about markets being inefficient. Uh, you know, there's so many people who invest according to rules of thumb, and they create opportunities for people who actually focus on fundamentals. So when we talk about interest rates, I think people conflate and confuse two things. When central banks are actually hiking short-term policy rates, and when markets are pushing up longer-term bond yields. And so if bond yields, longer-term bond yields are rising, that's generally been time periods where real estate and infrastructure have underperformed. Now, when I say underperform, I don't mean that they lose 10 or 20% of their value. I mean that markets accelerate faster than real estate and infrastructure usually do. So underperform. When central banks are hiking short-term policy rates, what we've usually seen is that real estate and infrastructure actually outperform. And the reason is simple. 
when you're hiking short-term policy rates, it's usually a function of robust economic growth to the point where central banks feel they must intervene to curtail that growth before inflation takes off. And so in an environment like that, the demand for infrastructure and real estate assets has surged and so have cash flows. And so that's why the businesses outperform. And an environment where longer term bond yields are rising is usually predicated by inflation expectations picking up or the real cost of money picking up. In that type of environment, growth is just beginning to ramp up. And as a result, investors usually start taking more risk in their portfolios. So they start selling things like real estate and utilities and infra to buy things like energy and financials that are more cyclical and usually lead an economic upturn. And so mm -hmm. those are the two different scenarios and how real estate and infrastructure perform in those two markets. And so what we're seeing going forward is we're waiting for central banks to begin a hiking cycle as economic activity is robust. And in that type of environment, we think real estate and infrastructure will perform the way it has historically, i.e. perform very well and outperform general markets. Okay. Dennis, um, I can't believe it, but it's almost been about an hour of, of conversation uh, and great insight uh, and explanations. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine. Looking forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you. Can't wait. We'll do it. <laughs> see, We'll see how all this conversation plays out over the next year, right? Definitely. Happy to. Okay. Thank you so much.